Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Brett, sometimes I dream of becoming an actor. Have you ever dreamt of becoming an actor? Maureen, what is it you think I'd do for a living? Never mind, sounds like you need the New York Film Academy. NIFA offers workshops, BFA and MFA degrees and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, journalism and more, online and on campuses across the globe. To make films alongside industry professionals, explore more at nyfa.edu. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Maureen. Look out, it's only films to be buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. My name is Brett Goldstein. I'm a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, a man about town and I love films. As A.A. Milne once said, I think we dream so we don't have to be apart for so long. If we're in each other's dreams, we can be together all the time. Like how we can also sing a song from Aladdin and immediately feel connected by it. That's a lovely, AA. Eh? Every week, I invite a special guest over. I tell them they've died. Then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. Previous guests include Barry Jenkins, Kevin Smith, Sharon Stone, and even Yed Nanbles. But this week, it's the brilliant writer, actor, producer, director, and creator, Mr. Mark Frost. Head over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein, where you get an extra 20, 25 minutes with Mark. We go deep. He tells a secret about Twin Peaks. We talk about the best beginnings and endings. We talk about all sorts of stuff. You also get the whole episode uncut and as a video. Check it out over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. Ted Lasso season two and one is available on Apple TV Plus. You can watch the whole thing in one go. Super Bob and Soulmates are available on Amazon Prime in most countries. So get on with that. So, Mark Frost, this episode is genuinely deeply meaningful to me. Mark Frost co-created Twin Peaks with David Lynch. It's a show I saw when I was far too young and I would credit with making me the man I am today. I have loved and obsessed over Mark's work for many, many years and so the chance to talk to him was a real honour. We recorded this over Zoom a few days ago. I think you're going to hear in the first five minutes how overexcited I am. I'm like a dog running around, you know, and a dog is just like, <laughs> needs to settle. I'm so excited I'm talking to Mark. I'm just like, ah, ma, ma, ma. But it was so special to have this time with someone who has so profoundly influenced my brain and I'm extremely grateful to him. And by the way, he was proper wonderful. I think you're going to love this one. So that is it for now. I very much hope you enjoy episode 187 of Films to be Buried with. And welcome to Films to be Buried with. It is I, Brett Goldstein, and I am joined today by a novelist, an actor, a writer, a playwright, a screenwriter, a director, a producer, a creator, a legend, a huge hero, a father, a son, and a living God amongst us. I can't believe he's here. Please welcome to the show. It's the brilliant, it's the amazing, it's Mark Frost! Hello, hello, hello. 
Mark, Fr- Mark Frost. You forgot to mention championship pole vaulter. I know, and I'm kicking. My, I'm literally kicking myself right now. What an idiot! <laughs> it's usually the first thing on my CV. I don't know how you missed it. <laughs> Mark Frost, I'm gonna I'm gonna be straight with you. You are in uh, one of three people that I've had in this podcast that I've been most excited to talk to. One was Barry Jenkins, the other was Brene Brown, and the other is you. And in in all three of those cases, I'm slightly like overwhelmed by I have so many things I want to talk to you about. I'm so excited to talk to you, but I also I guess I firstly need to know what your tolerance is for being told you're brilliant. It's one of them. Like, as in, if you're like, please don't tell me I'm a genius for an hour because it'll make me sick. Or if you love it, just tell me. Uh, well, I have no aversion to it. I, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's your opinion. So I, uh, who am I to tell you what to think? You know what I mean? All right, listen, you're a genius. So <laughs> look, the, 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 there are, you, you very kindly said that you'd listen to some episodes of this podcast. So you might already know this. There are two things that take up most of my brain. One is the Muppets and the other is Twin Peaks. And uh, I, I'm often asked, I'll drift off and someone will say, what are you thinking about? And I'll go, oh, Twin Peaks. Like mm. it takes up, it lives in my brain. If I'm ever sad, I'll just look up a new theory on Twin Peaks. I just love reading any new take. Fantastic. It, it, you built this world that, and I think you know this, that it lives forever in people's minds and they take it into all these different realms and I know you never say what it all means to you as much as I might ask you right you're never gonna well I, I've always been a big believer that people get to interpret your work however they choose you can't impose your mm. sense of what the meaning is or what you were trying to say if they didn't get it they didn't get it if they got it in whatever form they think it's it, it works for them then they got it so why gild the lily have you ever read like a take on it or someone's told you, oh, well, Twin Peaks is about this and it's made you angry where you've gone, no, it is definitely not that. It can be anything, but it's not that. Once in a great while. Okay. I mean, I did get a 12-page letter from an inmate in a prison in, in Missouri once about 30 years yeah. ago who, who explained what, what he thought it was all about and my part in it involved aliens and, and murder and I think a, a lot of things that might have been personally dangerous for me. So oh I, I felt... That was not uh, the theories I wanted to ascribe to. Oh, my God. It, I mean, it, when you create something like this mm-hmm. and, and you send it out into the world, you can't control how people are going to respond. But you can certainly try to weed out the people who feel that you've been speaking directly to them through a tinfoil hat. And maybe it's best that we not correspond. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm worried I might be one of those people. I mean, I'm, I'm truly not exaggerating when I do say... I've talked about this in like interviews. I think it's a defining a defining moment in my life and my sister is I was nine years old. Me and my sister had been out somewhere and we came home and my dad was on the sofa and the TV was on and we said, dad, dad, whatever. And he went, shush, 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 shush just shut up, sit down. Huh. And it was like one minute into the Twin Peaks pilot. And so we were nine and 11 and we watched it and it was the greatest thing we'd ever seen and it scared the absolute shit out of us. And yeah. I was supposed to, me and my sister had shared a room and I was supposed to finally move and have my own room, but we were so scared. <laughs> I think it was meant to be my first night on my own. We were so scared <laughs> that I brought my mattress from my room and just slept next to my sister's bed and stayed there until I was 18. I mean, wow. <laughs> well, we really helped, helped in your formative years, you know, push totally. you along your evolutionary path. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> it totally did. I, I think it's informed much of my thinking on a lot of stuff. 
Uh, Can I ask you about The Return, Twin Peaks The Return, which is an absolute stone-cold masterpiece. I've read a lot of what you've said about it, but I'm curious. There are a lot of shows that came back. There are a lot of things that came back. I won't name them. There are lots of things where people are like, oh, bring bring back that thing we love. And it came back, and they brought back the thing you loved in the way you wanted it. And for some reason, it was disappointing. And it was it's like, like it's like Pet Cemetery. You know, you brought yeah. back something from the dead. And yes. if you're trying to if you're trying to recreate it in its original form, it's still dead. You know, and it, yeah. it becomes quite horrifying, I think. So uh, my feeling was <clears throat> we had an opportunity to tell a story that was about the most fundamental issue we all face, which is the passage of time. You can't fight this process. And if time is a river, then your boat's going to be in a different place 25 years later. And we all were, as we discovered uh, when we all got back together, everybody was mm. in a different place. And I wanted the show to reflect that. Yeah. So I didn't want to do the cozy tropes that people freaked out about 30 years ago. I wanted to jolt them again, you know, and show them the world's changed. And we've all changed. And let's see that on screen. It's a, it was a unique opportunity. And I felt that was really the theme of the piece was to, this is what life does to you. And mm-hmm. it does different things to different people, but it leaves no one unchanged. So that was fundamentally what I, I thought we were trying to get at. That's amazing. But I, I, I watched it and I was like, weirdly, in its own way, you did do exactly what you did with Twin Peaks originally, which was give people something they'd never seen before. <laughs> like, that was the thing. It was like, why we love Twin Peaks in the first place. Like, what? The, wow, this is blowing my mind. And you did it again by not doing the same. Yes. The, the very first conversation we had about it, when I went back to David and I said, I think we have an opportunity to do this. And it took a year of conversations after mm-hmm. that initial meeting to pinpoint what we were going to talk about and, and what we were on about. And it had nothing to do in many ways with the old Twin Peaks. It was, yeah. yeah, it was set in the same place. It had many of the same people, but their concerns had changed. The world had changed and the show needed to reflect that. So we just went for it. There's a couple of things I would like to ask you, which are more, I hope not just specific to Twin Peaks, because I'm sure you won't answer them if they're about that. But in Twin Peaks, there's certainly the suggestion of evil as a outside force as a sort of spiritual thing that can take over someone. Is that how you feel about evil? I always read these theories that is not a spirit and is just, I mean, I'm going to put a heavy, heavy spoiler warning on this episode. But so I read these things, like to me, it was always was possessed by but then I've read lots of things going, no, that's just how people rationalize it when they're in these circumstances. Do you believe that evil is a an outside force that can overtake someone or do you think it is just within man i think it's both i've always described evil as a lack of something it's a lack of human empathy it's a lack of understanding that other people are autonomous beings with their own course in life but if you are sociopathic or schizophrenic or psychotic Mm. uh, which can be caused by many of the things we just talked about child abuse uh, neglect severe mistreatment by your parents. I mean, that's usually what leads to this. That's evil. That is a fundamental human truth. To mistreat your own child is is a great and uh, almost unforgivable evil. And it's often what results in these people who are evil themselves. I mean, I think we've, we've had ample evidence of that in this country in the last five years. When you see a, 
a leader rise to the top who is himself profoundly ill, which I, I believe that man was, yeah. it infects people who are vulnerable. And it has done almost incalculable damage to our social fabric here because putting someone like that in a position of power is so profoundly effective to vulnerable people who don't know any better or who are susceptible to that kind of thinking. So it's a chicken and an egg, uh, and it's hard to know which is which, but evil almost never sprouts without that kind of provocation Mm. or origin story. I taught in a prison for a year when I was a playwright. I taught writing to inmates and I spent time talking to these guys and you don't talk about what, what did you do? Why are you in here? Unless they volunteer. It's a, it's a kind of an etiquette that it's probably best that you uh, (laughs) adhere to. And so there was a guy in the class who uh, very quiet turned in his assignments, never spoke in class, wasn't a bad writer, actually had some, insightful stories. And I was very curious about him because he was obviously intelligent and he middle-aged guy. And as I was about to leave, when the six months was up, I was very curious. I finally did break etiquette and ask someone else, what did that guy do? And he was a a former repairman, radio and television repairman, and he murdered his entire family. Oh my God. Wow. You'd never have known it to look at him. He was as mild-mannered as could be. It could have been a momentary madness. It could have been there was something truly dark and evil inside it. I don't know. Right. But there he was serving on, you know, five life sentences. And uh, you walk away from that going, there's something at work here that seems to be a central theme of the human experience. If you don't adhere to social norms and you feel you're above the law, you're going to run afoul of the system. And the system has to self-protect it, itself against that kind of darkness. So it's very naughty. It's a very thorny human problem. And we haven't solved it yet. We're a long way from doing it. You telling me that and about talking about the, your recent president, the, the woodsman with the radio, that's Trump with TV <laughs> or Twitter. Like it's... In, in, a, in a way, I mean, yeah, you, you know, it's all grist for the mill. We never talked about what we were writing it before he'd come to power. And we were shooting it, you know, the year that he was elected. So in a way, we kind of anticipated some of these things. But um, if you've got your ears tuned to the right frequencies, you know, you can, you can pick these things up when you're storytelling. And you are a canary in the coal mine. You want to just, you know, put out bulletins every once in a while and say, beware, you know, danger ahead. There be dragons. You know, those areas <laughs> of the maps they didn't used to fill in. That's That's where we are right now. I've obviously done a lot of uh, reading on your stuff and, uh, and there's a book conversations with Mark Frost, which is very yeah. good. And in it, you talk in quite um, an optimistic way about the, in the grand course of history, we are always in a better place than we were. But then you say these last four or five years have been troubling. How do you feel given that I think you are attuned to these vibrations? How, where do you, how do you feel right now at this current point in history? It's up to us, you know, that, that's, that's what I always feel about the human evolution. I don't believe that we're being guided by benign supernatural forces. It is truly a world of people with free will. And it's up to, to us to right that ship and, and, and send it in the right direction. And we've always been able to do that up until now. 
we're now facing much graver consequences to our behavior than we have in the past because of the number of people, the, the size of the civilization that we've created. And there's plenty of people who are saying, okay, we got to do something now. There seem to be a disturbing number of people who say, why change You know what works for us? We're making plenty of money and uh, they're not thinking beyond their own generation, you know, and that's, that's the, the thinking that we have to instill in people if we're going to survive. I think that's the, and, and storytellers should have some small part in not preaching to people, but showing them what those consequences might be. I don't think there's any, it's any accident that we've had a lot of uh, dystopian uh, stories being told, uh, including apocalyptic ones. Yeah. That's in the air and it's a possibility. So here we are. Very interesting. The one other thing, well, actually, maybe we'll, we'll come to that. But um, do you know what? I've just looked at the notes I made for this and I've just seen something and I'm like, oh, I forgot to tell you something. Mm. Oh, no. Something I should have said. Oh, I'm such an idiot. Mark Frost. I mean, I mean I'm literally, uh, I was so excited about meeting you and I forgot I have to tell you this quite important, quite important thing. I'm going to, I feel like a, a dope. I was, I'll just say it. You've died. You've died, Mark Frost. Well, I knew that. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was... Oh, yeah, yeah. okay, okay. No, I've been living with that thought in my mind, really, for most of my life. So uh, <laughs> okay. it's it's all a dream. It is all a dream. It, it is all a dream. But but uh, I who died in dreamer? a way that was very... And who was the dreamer? So, uh, you know, I'd been working on this, uh, what I felt really strong original screenplay for quite some time. Just privately, my own mm-hmm. passion project. And I finally finished it. Congrats. And I uh, showed it to my agents and they were, they said, well, this is very ambitious. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, good on you for doing it. And they sent out on a Friday, Saturday morning, I got a call. You know, we've had four studios that want to do this. Uh, uh, Spielberg and, and Scorsese are, are, are both in. They say, Leo wants to do it. Brad wants to do it. Jennifer wants to do it. And the shot killed me. <laughs> oh boy so here we are wow <laughs> i mean <laughs> oh dear you are the first person to have died of shock and uh and i love it i mean i'm so sorry just instant was there anyone around at the time or you were just in your office on the no phone? i was just i was just on the phone i mean that's how they found me they found me with the phone still in my hand <laughs> A, a big smile on my face. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, <laughs> I was in the best mood when it actually hit. But uh, yeah. you, know, you got to go. You got to go. <laughs> Do you worry about death? Not as much as I used to. I guess, you know, if you live long enough and you know a lot of people who have died. And I've also, this is odd. Uh, this might not surprise you about me, but I've, I've written a number of things about people who were alive at one point or another. Yeah. And during that process, on, on three separate occasions, that person appeared to me in a dream and encouraged me to keep doing what I was doing. Really? Yeah. I love that. Uh, one was the uh, the book, The Greatest Game Ever Played. Yeah. Uh, I had a, a, about, uh, you know, a wonderful young man named Francis we met who became the first American-born player to ever win the U.S. Open and the first amateur to do it. Changed the course of the sports history. It was really the, the big bang of the start of golf, he came to me in a dream and said, yeah, keep going. And, and, and affirming that what I was on about was true. I had the same experience with uh, two other projects. So that's incredible. Uh, 
I mean, maybe that means I need medication, but th- these things do happen to me. And um, I've been aware, I've had experience with a ghost, which was intensely creepy and you, terrifying. Were you, you able to tell me that? Yeah, uh, uh, I was working uh, at a wonderful regional theater called the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, where I was a high school intern and appeared on all sorts of main stage productions and really got my training and got my start in the business uh, from that point on. And uh, as you probably know, most theaters are considered some of the most haunted places. That's why we leave the ghost light on stage every night. They actually leave a solitary bulb lit. This is a tradition really around the world in theaters. I, I think it's something to do with the intensity of feeling that people have when they're part of that theater and when they die often uh, tragically or suddenly they say these spirits are drawn to places where they were most connected so we had a there was a rumor there was a ghost in the guthrie and the uh the stagehands one night said look you know if a few of you guys in the program we're going to go out on stage tonight after everybody's gone the doors are locked after midnight and set up a ouija board on in the middle of this thrust stage the the rumor was that a, an, an usher who had worked at the Guthrie during its early years and had been the happiest, I guess, that he had been while there had committed suicide. And his ghost supposedly was still in the theater. His name was Dick Miller. And some of the people that we knew had known him. So out we go. We tried out the Ouija board. I'd never even played with one before. And I was one of three people who put our hands in the little, I guess they call it a planchette, the thing that moves around and spells. And as we started to ask questions, Something was moving this thing around. It wasn't me. And it was spelling out, somebody was writing down letters and it was spelling out things as it got going faster than we could spell, you know, with no stop between words. So um, it became quickly apparent. And and two of the other people were kids my age. They weren't the stagehands who were there to try to direct this or manipulate us or scare us. And he identified himself as Dick Miller. And we said, goosebumps, you know, you're, you're, mm. you're pretty freaked out. So where are you now? And he spelled out T-O-P. Now the Guthrie had a second stage called the other place theater, which was a few right. blocks away at an old, and everybody called it the T-O-P. It was the yeah. acronym for it. So we thought, do you mean the other place? And he said, no. And at that moment we heard footsteps in the catwalk above our heads. And the next thing I remember is standing outside the theater <laughs> Uh, it literally shivers. fled. It was one of the oh, freakiest things you could possibly imagine. So yeah, oh that was God. pretty wild. That was pretty wild. I never touched a Ouija board again. I just no. Those things are not to be trifled with. So you know, some of my the the stuff in in your work, and in particular in Twin Peaks, the the Black Lodge and the and yeah. the Red Room, and and these aspects of uh, another place and and spirits and the thin line between space and time and is that something you feel well it's it's something that i feel is possible and you know there's a wonderful phrase i believe it's an irish phrase of places that are that have qualities like what you're describing are known as thin places saying that the the veil is quite thin between here and there and i've been in places like that and felt it there's a, a an abbey in the north of england in whitby which was actually the Abbey that was the inspiration for Bram Stoker's arrival of Dracula oh, yeah. in the north of England. And I, I visited it when I was researching my first book, The List of Seven. 
And I felt it there. I felt something was going on there. So, you know, you, I guess I'm what you would call a sensitive in that sense mm. is that when I've been up against these things and I, I was shooting years ago in a, an old 19th century insane asylum outside of Montreal, we were using it as a location for the show I was doing. And there were parts of that hospital where they had kept, you know, the, the violently criminally insane that you just felt a darkness you couldn't even approach. It, it was overwhelming. Yeah. And anybody, everybody in the crew just said, I can't go in that room. There were, there were, so I've had experiences enough like that to know, yeah, there's something going on there. So do you, with all the, those things that you feel and think, do you think there's an afterlife? Do you, what do you think happens to you when you cross? I feel that something survives and I don't know what it is. And I, I, I don't think we're, our brains have enough bandwidth to understand what it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why I, I, I feel that most religions, which try to concretize the ineffable, you know, the things that can't be described, are inadequate to the task. The experience I had watching 2001 the first time was much closer to a genuine religious experience for me mm. because I felt it hinted at something like that. And it was smart enough not to say, and that's because it's A, B, C, and D. It simply gave you the feeling of what that might feel like when, when uh, Keir DeLay's character is in that room at the end and uh, you see him age through his entire life and a span of seconds, Hmm. you realize he's in the presence of something much larger than we are. So I assume that whatever it is, it is of that magnitude. It's beyond our comprehension. And um, if we can get like a little tiny, just a weak signal of it and believe that uh, that that might be a a clue that could lead you to some sort of understanding about it. Um, So that's been a lifelong pursuit for me is to try to understand this because yeah, death is terrifying. When you're young, I mean, you you think, what do you mean? There's an end to this wonderful experience I'm having? You've got to be kidding me. Uh, and But that's what makes it precious, you know? So it becomes part of your existence. And as you get older, uh, you know, the Tibetans say, if you want to have a good death, you'd best make a friend of your ending uh, mm. and, and, and prepare for a good death, because that's apparently, in, in their worldview, a very important part of the process. Oh, wow. Well... You prepared well, my friend, because <laughs> there's a heaven. You're absolutely welcomed in. You get a hero's welcome. No questions asked. They don't even ask for ID. They're like, <laughs> you're all coming. Wave me right in. Yeah. They You get to the front. Like, Let's give him to the front. No queue for you. It's like getting that TSA pass at the airport. Right? <laughs> yeah, you you're pre, pre-checked. Pre-checked, Pre-approved. Yeah. It's filled with your favorite thing. What's your favorite thing? My favorite thing uh, would be dogs. It's well. This heaven is made of dogs. I mean, mm. you, you, the the couches are made of dogs, living dogs. Oh, they're good, happy. Good. They, they're strong and they can take it. They like Fantastic. you can pet them, but you sit on them. The walls are dogs. <laughs> Everything is dog. You, not the food. The food is served on dogs, and uh, the dogs. <laughs> but we're not having dogs. Yeah. Not having. No one's eating. Dogs, dogs not on the menu. Good. The dogs yeah. are very very happy, and they yeah. jump all over you. And they're delighted to see you. They're 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 very they're great. But the dogs in heaven, as dogs are want to do, they want to, they're obsessed with you, and they want to know about your life. They want to know everything. They want to go for a walk with you, talk about everything. But they want to know about your life through films. These are film yeah. dogs, sure. And the first question they ask is, "What is the first film you remember seeing, Mark Frost?" Well, it's um, 
quite appropriate. I'm five years old, and my favorite aunt takes me to Grauman's Chinese Theater, which is a wonderful place to see your first film. It's a for those listeners who haven't been there. I mean, it's a world famous theater, but it's it's a palace inside, and it's it, it also has the feeling of a temple, a holy place. You know, there's a kind of consecrated feel, and you're you. We walked in, the movie had just started, so it was already pitch black, which was very daunting, but it was like entering a mystery school. I felt, mm. uh, this is frightening, but I really like it. And we walked in, and the, and the movie playing was, I'm sure you know it, a Disney film, Sean Connery's first starring role, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, 1959. Oh, wow. oh yeah. Um, it's, it's Disney working in a, that, that minor key of Irish whimsy, Mm. Uh, as the poster used to say, with a wee bit of magical shenanigans, you know. But, uh, and it's about an old uh, souse in a village who stumbles upon the leprechaun king, King Brian, and he steals his gold, as you know, you're wont to do when you run into the leprechaun king. And it creates all sorts of havoc in the village, and it puts his daughter in jeopardy. And there are truly terrifying scenes of banshees and a, a kind of spirit carriage driven by these wild horses and it scared the pants off me um but i came out of that experience going into the dark being terrified having a happy ending coming out and understanding this was a rite of passage and i have i now am a member of the church of the cinema that was my that 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 was my induction and uh and i felt yes that's what i'm going to do with my life that's incredible did you say then did you say it out loud that's what I'm going to do. I said I want to see it. Uh, I want to see this again, and I want to go to another movie tomorrow, and I want to go to have a movie every day this week. And you know, I didn't have the, the vocabulary yeah. to to fully express it. It was it was. It I want to be until, an executive producer. <laughs> exactly. That was that was when I was seven. I, I was able to make that connection. Um, so that was that was. You couldn't ask for a better uh, mm. introduction to film and uh, the high temple of of uh, the magic of the movies. That's really wonderful. So what is the film that made you cry the most? And are you a crier? And I'm interested in this because your work is very emotional. There's a thing about all all the versions of Twin Peaks and all the things you've done. There's no, I think maybe another reason it it is timeless is there's no irony. No one's like Mm -hmm. uh, being cool. (laughs) Like people cry in Twin Peaks. They're really crying. Everyone is feeling everything they are feeling at 100% and and yeah. there's no caveat for that it's like this is emotion this is truth this is straight down the middle and it, so for you what is that for you in your own life um well that's how life is you know you you have got to if you're not experiencing the full range of emotions in life you're you're listening to instead of the the full stereophonic sound that you could be having you're you're listening to a little transistor radio, you know. Mm. Uh, irony is, a, I think, often a protection against feeling emotion, and it's sure. it's it's it, it tends to be, I think, a, an adolescent stance that we take because emotion frightens us. And, and I think if you don't grow past it, uh, you're limited in some way. You need that the full range of human experience, and emotion is one of the vehicles for that. So, I've always felt I want to make people laugh, I want to make them cry, and if I make them think, that's that's a tertiary thing. But if you don't move them, they're not going to give a shit. They're not going to remember it. They're not going to say that thing, whatever it was, made a difference in my life. 
And I understood that kind of early on because of the things that moved me. So the, the movie that really made me cry the most, and I am a crier, but particularly at movies that, that work. Um, I don't like to be manipulated. I don't like tear jerkers per se. It's like, I, I, I don't want to kill an animal to make people cry. You know, it's like old yellow really pissed me off, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> As, you know uh, but if it's legit, if it's, if it's part of the story, mm. cinema paradiso. Beautiful. I mean, the first time I saw it, didn't know a whole lot about it. I did, didn't know the director's work. It's so fundamentally about the experience of the movies mm. And uh, this marvelous relationship between that young boy and Philip Doré's projectionist and how he kind of outgrows the relationship, the sadness of leaving a, a youthful mentor and going on to the big city and having a career and losing touch with his emotions and having a painful divorce and having success in the world, but feeling unfulfilled. And he comes back when the projectionist dies. And you know the scene I'm talking about mm. at the very end. They had a rule in the town that people weren't allowed to see scenes of people kissing. So he was required to cut all those scenes out of the movies that they were showing. And he finally finds the reel of the compilation of all those scenes. I mean, I could cry just thinking about it. Mm. And it's that incredible Morricone score. It's maybe he's the I think he's the greatest film composer, and that may be his greatest score. I cried for half an hour when that scene played. I, I couldn't leave the theater. The lights came up and I said, I'm sorry, I need to stay here for another 20 minutes. It devastated me because it, it, it addressed all these concerns. It's like, okay, people have to feel something. If you don't feel what you're feeling, it's going to make you ill at some level. And yeah. that, that scene had everything for me. And it's your two, it's your two um, touchstones, is the Church of Cinema and the Passage of Time. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. What's the film that scared you the most? And you, you, you like being scared. <laughs> I mean, you make you've scared me more than more than yeah. Anyone. I don't. I, I don't. Yeah, there are things that, as a kid, you know. Remember, I'm growing up in the '60s. It's it's black and white television until like, like 1964. And the way you learned about things, there was no internet. It was like the, this sort of It was just network. Ouija boards. <laughs> it, was, it was Ouija boards. That's how you got all your information. People would say, you got to see this. You got to see that. My brother saw this. My brother saw that. And there was this thing going around about this picture called Psycho. Oh, wow. That, yeah. you know, with, that we heard, you, oh my God, you have to see this. You can't, they won't let you in the theater. So finally it shows up on television. probably. 65 66 i don't know how that on network tv they're, mm. they're showing and there was nobody who knew how to manipulate your emotions more than hitchcock he's one of the foundational geniuses of, of the art form and he created something that was so thoroughly terrifying to me that i i remember watching it with two friends and we started on the sofa by the time we got to the motel we were on our feet kind of pacing by the time we realized Anthony Perkins is looking at her through a peephole, I moved behind the sofa. And by the time the, the curtain was torn open and the knife came in, I was below the sofa. I had, I literally, I couldn't watch the scene the first time. And all three of us are crouching behind the sofa. It was that frightening. And that's where we watched the rest of the movie, kind of peeking up to see, okay, what's coming Oh, no, he's going in the house. I'm going back down. <laughs> so that was the most scared I've ever been as a kid. 
The movie that most frightened me more as a grown-up, uh, and I'm sure you know it, is The Tenant, the Polanski movie from 1976. Oh, wow. right. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. And he plays the lead role. My God, that's this man's psyche. I don't know. I mean, he's been through he's been things in life that should kill 20 other people. And so in his work, I guess he's exercising some of those demons. But if you ever really want to not sleep for two nights, just pop on the tenant and, you know, go to town. <laughs> do, do you think, I'll tell you what, do, you must know this. I'll say this more for the listeners because I'm sure you know this. One of the things I really love about Psycho is that, because I always think about doing this myself with when you get notes that he mm-hmm. the shower scene he wasn't allowed the shower scene and they said you need to make cuts and he yep. made zero cuts and resubmitted it and said i've done what you asked and they, yes and they well there's like there's like 86 cuts and yeah you know in like thir- less than 30 seconds so you know this the scene in the one of the all-time scariest scenes of all time in for me is is you know the reveal of who killed laura palmer this scene of where we learn I, that i've been and, told that yeah and did yeah. you I'm just again. That was like network TV, and it's uh, horrifying. Was was that a fight to get that passed, or no? At that point, I mean, because we had we had set the groundwork rules very early. Uh, we just right. said, "Look, you're in last place, ABC. Your your network kind of sucks, and you you have terrible ideas, you know. And there's a reason people don't watch your shows. <laughs> so if you want us to do this, don't fuck around, you know. Just let us make the show that we want to, and we would get notes. And I would go, uh-huh, okay, thanks, you know, and hang up. And so they, they truly did leave us alone. I don't ever remember fundamentally having to change anything. I love, I love to hear that. Yeah. What is the film that most people don't like? It's not critically acclaimed, but you love it unconditionally. You don't care what anyone says, Mark Frost. What is it? I, I thought a long time about this because there's a lot of films and some of them are horror movies like, you know, uh, The Ninth Gate, I find endlessly uh, appealing. Again, it's Polanski, but uh, The Ghost Rider, another sort of underrated film he did that most oh, people yeah, don't I like. I, I thought it was terrific. Uh, but the one that is truly an execrable movie, and which I just, if it's on, I have to watch it, is Flash Gordon. Great film. You know, I mean, it's, it's so perfectly awful. Um, <laughs> it's like, it. Uh, I think... Somebody described it as a fairy tale set in a disco in the clouds with really bad acting. Um, it's it's so it's such it's a giant Easter ham, you know. <laughs> and, and everything about it is doesn't work, but it's so over the top, and it's got a great score by Queen that yeah. you know we still listen to the immortal Sam Jones as. Yeah. Flash Gordon, you know, who never worked again until I think Ted Two. <laughs> yes, Ted Two. You know, um, and uh, and, <laughs> you know, and Sam Jones, and a bunch of very committed great actors like Max von Sydow. You know, if you if the actors will commit to the idea, it doesn't matter how awful it is, as long as it's a full throated performance. They're not standing back and commenting on, oh my god, I'm slumming. They're embracing mm. it. And uh, uh, Max von Sydow is one of the 10 greatest actors in the history of the cinema. As Ming the Merciless? Come on. I mean, let's go. I'd watch and it every, right now. Everyone's on the same page. I think it's consistent. Like everyone is tonally, whatever tone they've agreed on, they've agreed on it. And, and they all, just went for it, you know? Yeah. It, it's, movies like that are pretty rare. 
mm. honestly, that are when they're that bad, but they're that committed. Xanadu would be another one that's like that. Right. But, you know. Well, again, it's to do with the lack of... I, I, this is not a bad film by any means, but there's something about it. Have you seen the film Annette, the new... Oh, yeah. Film? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, like, Leo's Carrick's it rocks. Amazing I mean, wild. But, yeah. but everyone is fully... That film does not work if anyone is not as if, committed. If, as there's a, if there's a moment of self-consciousness, the whole thing yeah. falls apart. No, it's but quite it's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. What is the film that you used to love? You loved it a lot, but you have watched it recently and now you don't yeah. like it. This makes me very sad because oh. when I saw it, uh, I really um, adored it. And they're friends of mine and I love their work generally. And I believe that they've made a good half dozen masterpieces in their life. But I, I went back during the pandemic and revisited a lot of films and I hadn't seen Fargo in a long time. And I didn't think it held up. Interesting. And I, and I, and for a couple of reasons, it's still, I lived in Minnesota for 10 years. So I know, okay. and they're from Minnesota. And I, I uh, we had friends in common back there, uh, the Coen brothers. And I think it's in many ways still brilliant, but it's not, as fully formed and as, as accomplished as I believe some of their other pictures were very soon afterwards. I think they were on the cusp of becoming master filmmakers. But the thing you forget is that Fran McDormand mm. is only in the film for about 25 minutes. Really? I, I She's got very that. few scenes. It's most, you're mostly with Steve Buscemi and uh, Peter Stormar and you're with Bill Macy who God love him. I, I know him. He's a wonderful actor. He had the worst Minnesota accent I've ever heard. It's I, I, that's not how people there talk. You know, I lived there for a long time, and oh my God, you know, it was just not right. What, what went on there? Okay, you know, I mean, he he missed it, and he's a meticulous actor, and it's a mm. it's a tough accent to master. So it wasn't as powerful and as and as strong a film after twenty years as I remembered, and that was that was kind of a. Mm. That made me sad. That is a bummer. What a shame. What a uh, shame. Yeah. What a shame. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what a shame, isn't it? Mark, Mark Frost. Hello, my neighbour Maureen. What's this I hear about you getting a promotion at the office? Didn't you just get promoted last month? It's all thanks to Canva. I've been nailing every meeting with AI-powered Canva presentations. Isn't that Canva's AI slide generator where you just describe your presentation in a few words and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides in seconds? That's right. And to top it off, I use Magic Write, Canva's AI text generator, to perfect my points. Sounds brilliant, Maureen. No more copying and pasting from other programs. No more app switching. Can Canva Docs with Magic Write generate any text you want for work? Yes. Sales proposals, marketing plans, yeah. Meeting agendas, ratings of all 12 Muppet movies using the extensive point system that I developed at age 12. Anyone can save time with Canva's AI-powered tools. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. Oh, thanks, my name, Maureen. Yeah, thank you. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U-fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a brand new Samsung A14 on them. Straight Talk Unlimited plans start at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Who wouldn't want a few extra bucks in their pocket? Straight Talk is a great everyday value on wireless. Plus, it all runs on the most reliable 5G network in America. So treat yourself to Straight Talk today. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store.
Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk Extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. Straight Talk utilizes the network with the most first place rankings and root metrics 1H 2023 5G reliability assessments of 125 metros. Results may vary. Not an endorsement. I've been looking forward to this one. What is the film that means the most to you? Not necessarily the film itself is any good, <laughs> but because the experience you had around seeing it that will always sure. make it special. Okay, well, this is a very specific instance. It's 1978. I'm still living in Minnesota. And uh, Minnesota uh, is in what you would commonly call Tornado Alley in the summer. From like southwest to northeast, tornadoes come through there with some frequency. I had never been in there in the years I'd been there. And I'm with a buddy, and we're going to see Cheech and Chong's big first movie, Up in Smoke. And we, we may or may not have been hot when we went. I, I, I don't remember. It's likely that we were. <laughs> Sounds like you were. Uh, um, and we're in a little, it's a little, you know, kind of bandbox multiplex in a suburb just kind of northeast of Minneapolis. And we're digging the movie. They're hilarious. We're laughing our heads off. There's almost nobody else there. It's like two o'clock in the afternoon, right. late in the run of its first run. And um, suddenly we hear, the sirens go off outside. The sirens are there for tornado warnings. Hmm. And I look at my buddy, Hal, and he looks at me and he, there's like 10 minutes left in the movie. And he says, should we leave? And I said, that's almost over. Let's wait. So we stay and we watch the end of the movie and it's hilarious. And we get in the car and we drive back home and we realize that in the interim, in that 10 minutes, Hmm. the tornado swept right across the area where we were going to be driving had we left when the sirens went off. Oh, my God. Cheech and Chong saved my life. Oh, my God. You are here because of Cheech and Chong. (laughs) How about that? That's an absolutely true story. That's fucking great. I I always knew I liked Cheech and Chong. Something about them. (laughs) Something about them. Something about them. Someday they're going to save my life. What's an unusual answer? We've never had that. We've never had a tornado pass by because of Cheech and Chong and Save My Life. I, I dare say you won't have another. I'm guessing that's <laughs> going to be a one-off. But... We don't know how many people they've saved. <laughs> what is what is the film that you most relate to, Mark Frost? It's a complicated answer because I think it changes as you go through life. You know, when I agree. When you're young, uh, it was it was HUD. I was Brandon DeWilda in HUD watching the adult world through his eyes. And, and prior to that, Shane, you know, I, I had a real connection to him as a, a young actor. I felt, oh, he's a good stand-in for me. I get that guy. Mm-hmm. Although he died, you know, maybe he went to see Cheech and Chong and left when the sirens went off. I don't <laughs> know. But... He followed authority like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He didn't go his own way. So I, I thought about this a lot. And um, I think the film that I most relate to in a way that was meaningful to how it affected me was it's a great movie sullivan's travels preston surges 1941 i was a very serious young playwright at the time Mm. and i was going to work in the theater i was going to write plays i was had gone to school to do that i'd taken a year off to go to hollywood and i worked i wrote the six million dollar man and two other shows for a year and i thought i'm not ready to do this yet you know this is I saw a lot of things that made me think, and I, I tell the story in the book that you looked at, but mm-hmm. I was at a A-list Hollywood party. It was at Bert Schneider's house, if you know who Bert Schneider was. He was the son of the head of Columbia 
pictures. He started BBS films with Bob Rafelson. They made Five Easy Pieces and the, the Monkeys and The King of Marvin Gardens, Easy Rider. You know, they were on top of the world. And this is 1974. Everybody was there. I walked in the door and somebody handed me a joint. It was Jeff Bridges. And I take a hit and I hand it to Jack Nicholson and he hands it to Lily Tomlin. You know, it's like, I'm, I mean, it's like I've gone, I've, I've landed in Oz. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I end up out by the swimming pool and I'm sitting on the diving board and I strike up a conversation with a very nice British director and Terrence Young, who had actually directed among other great movies, Dr. No and Goldfinger. And he takes an interest in me, you know, and he's, it's that thing when someone's older and they call you by your full name. Well, Mark Frost, you know, what's, what's your story? And, and so he, te- I tell him, you know, I was a playwright and I came out and I'm doing this. And he says, uh, he says, Mark, you know, look around. Everybody you see here, we're all whores. We're all doing this for money and they know what our price is. Wow. <laughs> and, and it was really, I mean, you couldn't have written the scene in a novel. I mean, it's, um, and I said, oh, re- really? Okay. So I, uh, about three months later, I went back to the theater and thought, okay, well, maybe he's right. You know, it's, it, it, you don't want, want to be one of those guys about whom they say, well, we know what you are. We're just negotiating your price. You know, yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to go see if, okay, am I going to be a serious playwright or am I going to be a whore? Those, that seemed to be the only, the only two options. And then I, I was teaching film. Uh, one of the things I did during that period away from LA. And one of the films I was teaching was Sullivan's Travels because I mm. loved Preston Sturges. And you may know the, the story of the movie. I, is, do. I really love it. He's it's Joel McRae as this very successful Hollywood director, but he's making uh, junk in his mind. He's making Ants in Your Pants, 1939, you know. And the, so the whole thing is he wants to make a serious film called, oddly enough, speaking of the Coen brothers, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. And he goes out on the road as a hobo. He wants to tell, it's during the Depression, he wants to tell the, the story of the common man. He wants to create art. And long story short, a series of mishaps and misfortunes, he ends up on a chain gang with amnesia in Georgia. And one night, they're taken in to be shown a movie. And they're showing a Mickey Mouse cartoon before the movie starts. And he looks around and he sees all the inmates crying their eyes out with laughter at how funny this cartoon is. And he has this epiphany. We don't have to make great art. We just need to make people laugh. We need to lighten their load. We need to give them some hope in the world. And he remembers who he is and he goes back to Hollywood and he gets the girl and he, and he goes back to making wonderful, popular movies. Yeah. And, and so that movie changed my life about the court. I, I had a good friend who had been my mentor who went to Carnegie Mellon 10 years ahead of, I did named Stephen Bochco who had, created a show the incredible he had been the guy who got me started in in hollywood and he worked on hill street blues yeah yeah i'd come on the air and he said you know come on out i want to i want you to work on the show so oh, wow. i i said uh you know hang on i'll be right there and uh that was that was the tur- that was a turning point in my life so i do credit that movie with with kind of so 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 in simple terms you were like i'm a playwright i'm an artist you went to hollywood a man there, a, a horrible man said, if you're here, you're a whore. You went, I don't want to be a whore. He, she went he, back. He was a nice man. He was a nice he was man. Yeah, yeah. 
But he said, if you're here, you're a whore. And you were like, oh, that doesn't yeah. sound great. So you went yeah. back to being an artist. Then Stephen Boyska, who was an artist working in this world, said, come and work with me and we'll make an amazing thing called Hill Street Blues. And you went, oh, all right. Yeah. And, and um, we got me into it. And at that point, I had lived for four years, you know, with that vow of poverty. And I was yeah. tired of having a car that wouldn't start in the winter and, you know, <laughs> yeah. taking the bus when it's 10 below zero. It just wasn't that much fun. So uh, Can I ask, uh, you You were a playwright and I, I've certainly read and that you want to get back to playwriting. Are you yeah. doing that now? Yes, I've, I've written uh, the first play I've written in 40 years. And uh, we're, we're going to, thanks, we're going to mount it, I think, next summer. It, it, should I, do you want to? Yeah, tell me everything you're happy to tell So, yeah. okay. So um, I had a great, great uncle. My father's great uncle mm-hmm. was a, a writer in the family. He was a, he'd been a newspaper man. More importantly, he was FDR's secretary from 1935 to 1945. It was a man named Will Hassett. I knew him when I was a kid. And during the war years, when there was a press blackout, he had known Roosevelt since the teens. He'd covered him during the First World War when he was the undersecretary of the Navy. And my uncle was working for the Washington Post. So they became friendly. 20 years later, he said, I, I, I need somebody over here who knows a little bit about everything and can write you know, good prose by the cubic yard. Come now. And he went to work for him. He worked for him until the day he died. He was with him when he died. He went on, by the way, to have the same job with Truman for seven years. Um, because Roosevelt had told Truman, there's only one person you can't do this job without, and it's, it's him. So during the war, he kept a diary. FDR couldn't be covered by the press when he was traveling for security reasons. So old newspaper man, he keeps a journal of those four years. Published in 1958, considered one of the great sources on the intimate life of FDR. So the play is FDR at war. And it's those four years through the lens of this relationship with my great uncle. And wow. uh, so I'm, I'm very excited about it. How, how long is this play currently? Um, it's, you know, standard length. Like two uh, hours, two, two, two hours, three hours. Yeah. One intermission. Yeah. Is it as much about their relationship as it is the history or is yes. it? Yes. It's very much about their relationship, their relationship, but it's also about all the battles he was fighting, not just with the Axis powers, but with his doctors and his health and his marriage and Republicans in Congress and and all the, the things that even his allies. I mean, Churchill yeah. is a character. It's it's a fantastic glimpse into who he is as a person. Fascinating. Wow. Congratulations. That's exciting. Thanks. So, where Thanks. are you going to put it on? Uh, we're going to do it off-Broadway, probably in Western Massachusetts, I think, in the, in the fall. And then uh, hopefully, you know, someday on Broadway. And will you, I don't really know how it works. Will you be heavily involved in casting rehearsals, everything, or do you hand over yeah. the play? And no, I think, you know, the, I mean, the thing that I do remember about theater yeah. is that the playwright's in charge, you know, he's the, yeah. he's okay, the, great. You, you are the, the, the master of your own uh, ship there. So I, I sort of will welcome that opportunity to go back and have some input because I, I feel mm. very strongly about this piece. So That's very cool. Can I ask you one other question along these lines? I, yeah. I, I get the impression that you like to basically do, correct me if I'm wrong, you follow the idea, whatever the thing is, the right format for the thing. If this is a book, this is a play, this is a TV show. It's not like you go, I want to make a TV show. You go, what's this idea? Is that correct? Yeah. Um, form follows function. You know, you have to figure out the idea and then figure out how best to tell the story. If you've got the storyteller gene, which I believe I'm sort of born with and, and the natural selection, it so happened. Mm-hmm. I was shown a path that allowed me to develop it. I've learned, and I've done a, I can't think of a form I haven't done. I mean, mm. documentary, sports writing, nonfiction, fiction, they're all the same to me. It's all the same. It's just that the form changes. Love to hear that. So I'll tell you where we are, Mark Frost. Okay. We're at, we're at everybody's favorite bit. 
What's the sexiest film you've ever seen, Mark Frost? Okay. okay. This is an, this <laughs> is an unusual answer because I, I don't think that sex per se on screen is terribly sexy uh, because I've filmed those scenes before. I've directed mm. people in them and you know it's, it's very technical. It's the, it's the furthest thing from romance. Mm. And sex to me is inexorably tied with romance. And the sexiest era, I think, in filmmaking uh, was the era that included people like Barbara Stanwyck and particularly Ginger Rogers, who I think was the most alluring human female person to ever appear on screen. So the sexiest movies for me are like Top Hat and even more so a, a lesser known one called Carefree that's Rogers and Astaire. But there was never a more sensual, beautiful, funny, witty, graceful, incredible athlete dancer than Ginger Rogers. I, I, mm-hmm. I defy anybody to, to top her as a, so th- that to me is, that's romance. Yeah. Um, and uh, I can watch those movies. They are evergreen. They, and Ginger Rogers is every bit as contemporary uh, as anybody that we know. And she'll live forever, I think, because of it. What, a, what an incredibly uh, brilliant and classy answer, which makes me feel sick that I'm going to ask you the, <laughs> the, the subcategory subcategory question <laughs> which is <laughs> Mark Frost, Travelling Boners Worrying Wydons, a film you found arousing, you weren't sure you should I'm so sorry. That's alright because I, 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 I have an appropriate answer. I had a huge crush on Haley Mills as a, as a young person who didn't but I hadn't quite awoken to the idea of why I would find her so attractive and she made a movie I think she made like six movies for Disney and I probably saw all of them, but she made one called Double Trouble where she played twins. And so there was something about seeing two Haley Mills that just made my system kind of short circuit. And I, it made me, as like to quote myself, feel funny Um, because I, you know, I was, I was waking up uh, as an adolescent. Well, not pre, I was pre-adolescent. That was the first time where I went, Something's going on here in my body, and there are two Haley Mills, and I just can't handle this. And I've got double trouble. I've got double trouble. Isn't Haley? Didn't she was the original Parent Trap as well, wasn't she? Yes. Yeah. She, she was always playing twins. She was doubling uh, up. Did she play twins in Parent Trap too? She must have done because they're twins in Parent Trap, aren't they? Yeah, I think I think they are. I think Disney were like. People really like it. Well, they, they, they doubled down. They realized, you know, <laughs> t- t- we can get two Haley Mills for the price of one. So Two Haley's. That, that sounds like the kind of calculus Walt would make, you know. <laughs> A whole lot of the audience feeling very funny right now. <laughs> very funny. Very funny. Mark Frost, objectively, what is the greatest film of all time? Chinatown. Great answer. Not been said in this category. No kidding. Which is surprising. It usually is on a list, isn't it? Why for you is it Chinatown? It's number one, it's a perfect script. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect script. There's nothing wrong with that script. And it's the, <laughs> it's the most complex, meatiest, actable, fluid ride that I've ever taken in a movie. I remember walking out of the theater, saw it in Westwood, the day it opened, I think mm-hmm. 1974. My girlfriend and another couple, we walked out and we talked about it for four hours because it's, it's like a giant trap that closes on you at the end. Yeah. Uh, and you realize that everything leading up to that has been preparing you for something that you can't quite handle the first time. 
and I've watched it probably more than any other film. I watch it at least once a year. It's a, it's a perfect script. It's perfect performances by two of the greatest stars we've ever had. I mean, I, th- I think Nicholson is arguably top three yeah. of the greatest movie stars sure. we've ever known. I've met him. He's a wonderful guy. And um, that movie spoke to me because it was about things that mattered to me. I, I had moved to LA when there were still orange fields in the Valley. And I didn't know this, the hidden history of LA as Robert Town was able to lay it out. So the film had, uh, it had mystery, it had political relevance, it had obviously sexiness, it had huge star power, and it had a director at the top of his game. Uh, again, one of the handful of great directors we've had in, in, this, in this art form. I, I can't get enough of it. I, if, I, if I had to die and come back in the context of a movie, to live in a universe, that would be the universe I would choose. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Can I ask you this? So you, you're an actor, an actor and a writer, and there's a story about Jack Nicholson. I'm sure I've told it on this before, but I, but I, but it's really stayed with me. I think it was in an interview with someone where someone said to him, "You're one of the great movie stars. Your your CV is incredible. You you know, there's really not really a bad film on your resume. How, why is that? Is it luck? Is it?" good fortune what is it and he said no it's because i'm a good writer mm-hmm. and it's that he he knows what a good script is and he knows how to improve a script when he's offered the job i and think I that's like, absolutely right how interesting yeah yeah he had great taste he had he had the, it took a long time for him to get there you know he, mm. he bumped around hollywood for close to 15 years before easy rider you know yeah busted him out and um and he was in the corman world which was a great training ground. You know, it's given us so many mm. incredible people. It was it was like summer stock for film, you know. It, uh, <laughs> I never worked for him, but I had plenty of people, friends who did. And it was a training ground. And so he came out of it knowing where an actor belongs in the ecosystem of a film. Mm. So he's a great teammate. You have to have teamwork. And you, if you're number one in the call sheet, you better be a good teammate. If yeah. you're not, then you're not going to be number one for long. We've both known people who are number one and are jackasses and it makes everybody's life miserable. And uh, his job is to make sure that everybody else is having the kind of experience that he thinks contributes to a good film. I really admire that. Yeah. That's wonderful. In terms of you and collaborating and stuff, like it's you, you work alone. I'm just fascinated in the, I guess I've got two questions for you. One is like energy as in, you write a novel, you write a play that is a kind of completely solo pursuit where you are alone in a room, just you. You've worked on Hill Street Blues, where it's a group writer's room. And then you've written with David Lynch, where it's just the two of you, particularly on the return row, it's just the two of you. Is it a big process for you to go, okay, I now need to sort of summon the energy that involves collaborating with huge people, the kind of social dynamics of that, the, you know, when you direct, it's incredibly social job Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. the, I guess it's a big question, but like, do you think you're an introvert? Do you think you're an extrovert? Do, do, do you need to balance these things out? If you've done a big kind of social job, do you want them on a quiet one? Like, Yeah, I think, I think I'm both. I think I'm, mm-hmm. uh, and I enjoy both for different reasons. I realized that I, after having directed a fair amount and having done a feature, mm-hmm. I realized that wasn't how I wanted to spend my life exclusively. Every once in a while, sure, but if if your if your bread and butter is writing, you've got to have that solitary processing time. You know this. Mm. I mean, it's you, it's it's tons of fun to collaborate. It's actually much easier when you've got 
look, sports is always the metaphor for me. I played a lot of sports as a kid. So the Hill Street Blues, it was like being on a basketball team. You know, it was like pass the ball over there. He takes it and runs with it. He takes a shot. You know, you, you come up with a scene, you come up with a line. It was a group effort. And because we did a lot of team building on that show, it was, it was a fun process. And it was bruising because it was also, you know, you, you got to fight for rebounds and you got to, you got to get your own turf. You know, you're trying to mark, mark your turf at the same time that you're trying to serve the overall good. So I like them all for different reasons, but as a writer, you've got to come back to that discipline of sitting down and facing the blank page or the blank screen. Mm. Um, so they're all the same to me. They're just different ways of experiencing. And do you, ha- you, you seem to me, very zen, like you, you seem, I don't know you, you seem like very mentally well. And kind Thank of. You. how do you deal with, or do you ever have problems with the ego side of it? Particularly, let's say Twin Peaks, if you hear people talk about Twin Peaks and they go, oh, David Lynch is Twin Peaks or something like that. Do, is there a part of you that's like, hey, what the fuck? <laughs> like, do you, or do you never, you tell me, how do you deal with when you're used to doing things on your own and then when it's a collaboration and people mm-hmm. might talk about other names do you know what I mean? Sure. And that's an ego concern. You know, mm. your, your, your ego pops up and says, hey, what about me? But if you're confident in what you do and you know what you did and are part of the process and the people who were making the thing mm. know, I mean, they know I was the showrunner on the show. So no, it doesn't bother me. It's like, I'll put it this way. The checks we get are the same size. And they both have our names on them. <laughs> so that's enough for me. You know, I, 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 I know what I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. I know you've never. You've, I, I'm just fascinated by anyone. I'm always fascinated by you know double acts or by anyone any collaboration. Where sure. It's like, how well, look, you, you know, I'm sure you enjoyed Get Back as much as I did. The, yeah. It's my favorite film of the year. Right. I always wanted to be a fly on the wall with those guys and see how mm. they worked it out. And we saw that. Yeah. We saw that. And and the answer was it was because they could check their ego at the door when they were in the room yeah. together, and it was a beautiful thing to watch. And to know that they still loved each other, yeah. even though they were having troubles, they worked it out. So that's what you do when you're committed and you're in the room, mm-hmm. you work it out. And what happens afterwards is out of your control. And yeah. I learned a long time ago, don't worry about things you have no control over. You're a Zen, you're a Zen master. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what is the film that you could or have watched the most mm. over and over again? Is it Chinatown? Well, yeah, that's one of them. But I since since it has its own category, I think I have a particular fondness and it's similar themed for lurid crime dramas set yes. in Los Angeles. It's a, it's a subcategory that I adore, but uh, so that includes uh, LA confidential and yep. heat, uh, which are both brilliant movies and uh, two that I will watch anytime they come on, wherever they are, I'm stuck. I'm watching the whole movie, but the one that I watched from that era over and over again, and I don't exactly know why yet is Ronan. With oh, Robert wow, yeah. De Niro and Jean Renault. It's John, John Franken. Is it John? And John Frankenheimer. It was yeah. la- his last great movie. And he's a, he was a great director. My dad mm-hmm. worked with him in the early days of television. Oh, wow. So I heard about, and you know, great movies early on. I think that's a wonderful film to get lost in. The world of that movie is spectacular. Yeah. Uh, so I, w- I will watch that obsessively if it shows up. What a, what a surprising and brilliant answer. I don't like to be too negative. So yeah. Let's, let's, let's deal with this as best we can. What's okay. the worst film you've ever seen? Every version of the Alamo. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, let's, let's examine this. You know, they never give you the context. 
Those guys were there to spread slavery into a, a, a state that belonged to Mexico. You know, their cause sucked. <laughs> they were bad people yeah. for pursuing it. And the fact that they're presented time after time as these heroic figures who die tragically in a, in a noble cause is an horseshit to fill, you know, SoFi Stadium. It's, it's a garbage story about awful people and people keep trying to retell it. It's it, <laughs> yeah. so I, I, you know, John Wayne's version is beyond terrible for all sorts of reasons, but every version of it sucks. Uh, and it's for that reason. It's a bad, it's a bad cause. You're betting on the wrong team. Yes. It's like a film about Hitler invading Poland as like yeah. a hero. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I don't want any part of that. I'm sorry. I, I mean, the other one that's a contender is I'm sure you've had this mentioned before. There's a movie made mid fifties called The Conqueror. Do you no, know this movie? That is not okay. Mentioned. It's the story of Genghis Khan. Mm-hmm. It stars John Wayne. Has Genghis Khan? Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> and Susan Hayward. And not only that, it was the last film ever produced by Howard Hughes. Hmm? They shot it in an area in Utah that was directly downstream air quality wise from the nuclear testing ground in Nevada. And of the 220 cast members, over 90 of them got cancer and over 50 of them died. Oh my God. And that was also true, including John Wayne and Susan Hayward and and many other people in the movie. So not only is it John Wayne and Genghis Khan is on the face of it, the worst idea you've ever heard. It killed everybody who made the movie, you know, and Howard Hughes pulled it from distribution. You can't find it now. Oh, did and he? he used to sit and watch it obsessively in his penthouse, along with Ice Station Zebra. Those were the two movies he would watch. We know about Ice Station Zebra. Why would he watch it obsessively? Because he was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> so I think that objectively makes it the worst movie in that it killed nearly everybody okay. who contributed to it. God, that's what part eight of The Return is going, is that they're up the road making Genghis Khan. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh my God. Right in the middle of it. Wow. 12. I think they, I think they set off 12 H bombs at the nuclear testing ground during production. Yeah. Have another cigarette, Duke. You know, it was like, <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> Mark Frost, you are, uh, you have written yeah. and performed very funny stuff. Very funny. What is the film that has made you laugh the most? I have to go back to the classics for this. Cause I started, okay go into these movies when I was in high school. The University of Minnesota Film Society started to bring back those old classic movies. And when I saw Buster Keaton's The General for the first mm. time, I fell on the floor. I mean, I was equally, I was laughing as hard as I was stupefied yeah. by what he had pulled off. Yeah. If people don't know the movie, I mean, it's a silent film. It's a Civil War story about a guy who kidnaps a train and tries to take it away from, uh, it's a true, it's based on a true story. He's he's sadly a Confederate guy who is being chased by a Union army. And it ends with him, with the, an actual train from the era driving over a gorge and blowing up the bridge and the train plunges. It's one of the greatest shots in cinema history. And Buster Keaton made all this stuff up on the spot. He was a genius beyond compare. Uh, He was, again, one of those people who helped invent the vocabulary of film and the general, I think is, I mean, he's made, he made one masterpiece after another, but that to me was the pinnacle. And the only thing that made me laugh as hard as that was W.C. Fields trying to sleep on his porch 
in It's a Gift, which I think is my favorite of his movies. You know that. that I love W.C. Fields. Yeah. And he has never been mentioned on this podcast. You're kidding. I don't think he's ever come up on this podcast. So he's a, he was a genius. Yeah. He was an absolute tragic genius. And people should go back and look at his movies. The Bank Dick, It's a Gift. These are perfect movies. They're classics. And mm. he will make you roar with laughter. And then, you know, the Marx Brothers and Horse Feathers is the one that makes me laugh the most. But they, that's anarchy, you know, personified. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. You, yeah. What's that? I, I, I'm afraid I've, I've never seen it because I don't think we got it in the UK. But you made a show on the air. Yeah. And that sounds like, uh, Marx Brothers is that right? Kind is of what? Yeah, it was area? inspired. Yes, it was inspired by the the wonderful chaotic anarchic yeah. energy. It was about a live television show in the fifties, and it came out of an idea. My dad had been the stage manager on one of the great shows of that era, Philco Playhouse. So I had all these stories about things that went wrong when people were live on the air, including some very famous actors. So I, we put all those ideas into on the air. Next time you're in LA, call me up and I'll show it to you. Just making a note. I hope everyone heard that. When I show up at your house, you can't call the police. <laughs> uh, Brett's here again. Um, <laughs> he said, okay. listen to this podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, just give him the DVD. It's like, I'm busy. but you know. Just slide it under the door. He doesn't have <laughs> to come yeah. in. <laughs> Mark Frost, not only have you given me all this time and told me in the secret Patreon section how Annie was. You, uh, This has been beyond uh brilliant and i'm so grateful i've loved it however when you wrote this screenplay you sent it off and uh friday and saturday morning you get a call from your agents they say four studios want it leo wants it meryl wants it jennifer lawrence wants it j-lo's interested uh which i was particularly excited about every it's a bidding war amongst the the biggest Mm -hmm. hanks wants to look in Mm -hmm. And you died of shock instantly with a smiling face. You've probably never been happier. Which, never. You know. Never would be again. Well, I've popped around to see you on the air, uh, as promised. But I brought a uh, coffee with me just in case you never know. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, yeah. And I walk in. I go, Where, where's Mark? Anyone see Mark? And uh, she's just upstairs there talking to his agents. I go, oh, right. And I, and I creep upstairs. And I knock. I say, Mark, sorry, are you still on the phone? But it's silent. I go, oh, maybe <laughs> Maybe he's off the phone. Mark, sorry. You were... I go in. You're dead. But you look so happy. I don't want to disturb you. I'm like, yeah. well, maybe he's fine. So, but you're so happy in your shock. You've 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 stuck to the chair with sweat from happiness. <laughs> and so I I can't get you off the chair. You're stuck in this chair. So I have to chop up the chair. I have to chop you up. Anyway, I pack you in to this coffin, and it's yeah. full. It's not like I misjudged the size, and I apologise for that. But this coffin is absolutely stuffed full of Mark Frost. And there's really only enough room for you to have one DVD that I can slide into the side for you to take across to the other side. And on the other side, it's movie night every night. And one night, it's your movie night. What film are you going to show the people of heaven, the dogs of heaven, when it is your movie night, Mark Frost? You would think it would be Chinatown. You would. But would that play to dogs? But... I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do a Planet of the Apes ending here. There's an Italian film from a few years ago called The Great Beauty. Yes. Which I can't get out of my head, and I feel if I watched it a hundred thousand times, I would find something new in it every single time. Yeah. And we're going to be in heaven for a while, mm-hmm. 
So I'm going to take Sorrentino's The Great Beauty with me because I want to get to the bottom of it. That is a magnificent answer and a wonderful film. Mark Frost, God bless you. Is there anything you would like to tell people to listen, look out for, read, watch before you go? There's a terrific new show. Uh, well, it's not new on Apple called Ted Lasso. Oh, that's your mouth. That people should inhale because we've been through some hard times these last few years. And this show will be like a balm to your soul. It will make you feel that anything's possible, that there is good in the world, along with sorrow. And we will find our way if we trust our own inner natures to relate to other people, to care for them, to befriend them, and realize that we are all in the same boat and we better start rowing in that direction. So thank you for that. Right. Well, you're going to make me cry and I'm going to get you saying that and I'm going to send it to the whole team at Ted Lasso because it will it'll, it'll mean a lot to them. So thank you very much. I was, of course, asking if there's anything that you have coming up that you would like. I know. Uh, well, I mean, I've got the play. Really great I've, yes, I the play. You. I've got the play. I've got two other projects that I'm working on. Nothing that's about to happen. So okay. it's it's premature to be promoting it. But I'm doing a novel of the play as well. I'm, oh, I'm gonna, cool. You do, you. That's interesting. You yeah. really, you really, you, you did the novel, the novels, which I fucking love of Twin Peaks. Yeah. You like all the, all the ones. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's a way to, that's how you, that's how you build worlds. And as, mm. as a writer, I always wanted to build a world. Uh, Tolkien, I think, inspired me in that regard. Um, <laughs> so that's what I'm, that, that's my objective whenever I'm tackling a story. I want to give you a, yeah. a, a full rounded experience uh, because that's, that's how we understand our own world, by seeing others. You are a brilliant man. Thank you, Mark Frost. Brett, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, a uh, lot of fun. I've loved it. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Good day to you, sir. So that was episode 187. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein for the extra 20, 25 minutes of chat, secrets and video with Mark. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five stars rating but don't tell me about the podcast don't want to hear about it what i want to hear is about the film that means the most to you and why that's a lovely thing to read and my neighbor maureen's obsessed with reading them so thank you thank you all for listening thank you so much to mark for giving me all that time thank you to scroobius pip and the distraction pieces network thanks to buddy peace for producing it thanks to acast for hosting it thanks to adam richardson for the graphics lisa Lydon for the photography come join me next week for another incredible guest i think i've got an absolute banger again next week so that is it for now In the meantime, have a lovely week and please be excellent to each other. Sometimes I dream of becoming an actor. Have you ever dreamt of becoming an actor? Maureen, what is it you think I'd do for a living? Never mind, sounds like you need the New York Film Academy. NIFA offers workshops, 
BFA and MFA degrees and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, journalism and more, online and on campuses across the globe. To make films alongside industry professionals, explore more at nyfa.edu. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Maureen. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U-fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.